Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and I'm bringing you January 2022, the New Year's AJT highlights. And these are the editor choice articles for the January edition of AJT. I'm joined, as always, by Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. And our editorial fellow uh, this month is Rebecca Craig Shapiro, who's a kidney organ transplant surgeon at Cornell, who is going to be discussing two of the papers. And in addition, we will have Juan Carlos Caicedo, who is a liver transplant surgeon here at Northwestern, who will be finishing off this podcast discussing some interesting new techniques in in living donor liver transplantation. So as always, I'm going to just quickly go over the table of contents, the papers that we'll be discussing in order of when they'll be discussed. So Rebecca will kick us off with Kidney Accelerated Placement Project, Outcomes and Lessons Learned by Noreen et al. Then she will do Changing Trends in Mortality Among Solid Organ Transplant Recipients Hospitalized for COVID-19 during the course of the pandemic by Heldman et al. And then Roz will do a randomized controlled trial of liposomal cyclosporine A for inhalation and the prevention of bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome following lung transplantation. And then Dr. Caicedo will do two papers in, in living donor uh, liver transplantation. The first, Pure Laparoscopic Living Donor Liver Transplantation, Dreams Come True by Sue et al. And then Robotic Donor Hepatectomy, a major breakthrough in living donor liver transplantation by Broering et al. So we've got a full slate and some good articles. And so why don't we kick it off? Rebecca, if you could start off with the kidney accelerated paper. Thank you, Dr. Levitsky and Dr. Mannon. I also want to thank Dr. Fang and Dr. Blosser and Kulkarni and the members of the editorial board and AJT staff for their mentorship this year during my fellowship year. So the first paper that I'm going to talk about is the Kidney Accelerated Placement Project, or CAP, paper. In July of 2019, the OPTN launched the CAP program, and this lasted for one year. And the aim of this was to see whether accelerating offers of hard-to-place kidneys via the organ center to centers that have a track record of using these organs will increase their utilization. And to give some background, the current OPTN policy requires that OPOs transfer to the organ center, or OC, the placement of kidneys that haven't been accepted at the local or regional level and have reached the national level, which are generally high KDPI donors. And the CAP project arose in part out of the 2017 National Kidney Foundation Consensus Conference and as a response to the Executive Order on Advancing American Kidney Health with the goal of improving the placement of high-risk kidneys and thus hoping to reduce kidney discards. And so in CAP, to trigger this accelerated placement pathway, a kidney had to be from a donor that was 18 years or older with the KDPI of 80 or higher, and had reached national allocation. And there's a CAP criteria. The authors use logistic uh, model selection that included things like the KDPI, age, creatinine, diabetes, IV drug use. And for each donor kidney being considered, they took all of these donor factors that I just mentioned into consideration in the algorithm. And any program that had transplanted a kidney from a similar or more marginal donor in the prior two years would qualify for the accelerated offer for that particular kidney. 
So once the transplant program was identified, the candidates of these programs were still ordered using the usual OPTN policy allocation sequence. And if the kidney was not placed using this accelerated process, it was continued to be offered to the remaining candidates at the non-CAP programs using the usual policy allocation. So as I mentioned, the pilot CAP period lasted for one year, starting in July of 2019. And because COVID pandemic started in March of 2020, much of the data in this paper is analyzed looking at two timeframes, the CAP period and the CAP period excluding COVID. And this CAP period is compared to the pre-CAP time period, which is the one year prior. And propensity score matching was used to compare to a comparable subset of donors from the pre-CAP time period. And so let's get into some of the results of the paper. So the median acceptance rate for all donors offered by the OPO or the OC was 74% in the pre-CAP period compared to 74% in the CAP period. Looking at only CAP-eligible donors offered by the OPO or the OC, this dropped to approximately 48% acceptance rate in the pre-CAP period versus approximately 49% in the CAP period. And when looking only at CAP-eligible donors offered by the OC, the acceptance rate was 31% in the pre-CAP period versus 21% in the CAP period. So there was not an increase in donor acceptance rate for these hard-to-place kidneys. In terms of offer time, so part of the initiative's effort also was to expedite organ placement. The post-cross-clamp time, so the time from the donor cross-clamp until the kidney was accepted for transplantation, did not decrease with CAP. Importantly, there was no change in the percentage of CAP-eligible donors that were accepted pre-CAP versus CAP, as well as there was no difference in conversion from acceptance to transplantation, which was approximately 71% in both time periods. Looking at the characteristics of the recipients of CAP offers, there was no significant differences compared to those that received similar kidney offers during the pre-CAP period. And things like cold ischemia time or delayed graft function were unchanged. There was a slight shift towards longer distances that the kidneys traveled under CAP, but this did not reach statistical significance. And the one-year post-transplant graft survival outcomes during the pre-CAP and the CAP periods were found to be similar. So, unfortunately, these results indicate that this version of accelerated placement failed to meaningfully improve either organ acceptance or transplantation. However, I think there are still important lessons to be learned that can inform future refinements of this project. And some of these things were discussed in the accompanying editorial by Mohan et al. One modification to consider is that programs qualified for CAP by having done just a single similar transplant in the prior two years. And so considerations could be requiring programs with more than one similar transplant, say five or 10 prior transplants, to more accurately predict programs that will accept these types of kidneys on a more routine basis, or perhaps shortening the time frame, frame from the prior two years to say the prior six months. However, these moves could also potentially decrease equity by continuing to funnel these kidneys to a select number of transplant programs. It's also possible that waiting until kidneys hit the national allocation level to then accelerate placement is intervening too late 
to effectively increase utilization. And this project offers were made to the accelerated programs in the same order that their candidates appeared on the match run, rather than potentially using different algorithms to resort patients, perhaps by, say, geography. And then another possibility is to consider simultaneously expiring offers. So I think when, when considering possible refinements to this algorithm, it's instructive to keep in mind what other countries are doing, such as the UK kidney fast track scheme, in which that scheme and in the uh, Euro transplant scheme, the kidneys are offered such that there's flexibility that the accepting center can transplant the kidney into any patient of their choosing versus CAP, which requires that the patient for which the kidney was accepted receive the transplant. However, of course, turning this into somewhat of an open offer system also calls into questions issues of disparity and equity. So I'm sure the results of the CAP trial and of this paper will elicit much further discussion of additional nuanced methodologies and algorithms to explore ways to facilitate utilization of these difficult to place kidneys while trying to maintain equity. That was a great summary, Rebecca. I'm sure Josh also has questions, but this is a kidney paper. And, you know, I'm just curious. I remember this project being part of, of uh, an opportunity through, I guess, you know, and such. Did they mention which centers were involved in this program? Because I didn't read, I, I didn't really go to the methods and I can't remember. And if you do know, um, were they tended to be large centers, like high volume or medium volume? They don't. That's a good question. They don't give those details. What they do say is that um, the, the details that they do give is that on, on average, 22 programs did not qualify for accelerated offers per match run. And the average number of accelerated matches for transplant programs that got accelerated offers was 45 while programs were bypassed on average on 49 matches. So it does call into question, you know, what programs these kidneys are going to, but they don't give more um, details than that in the paper. Yeah, again, I'm just, you know, it, I was trying to be optimistic that some kind of program like this, I mean, it's been hypothesized and suggested would actually improve opportunity and access. Yeah, Rebecca, that's a great um, overview. Do you think there, obviously you trained in, multiple organs. Do you think there's uh, applicability to this to outside of the kidney, uh, similar type programs, or is this really just unique to kidney transplantation? And I think that kidney transplantation in particular in the United States has this um, problem of a high number of discards. You know, when you compare in the United States that the discard rate of the kidneys is about 18 to 20 percent compared to some other countries in which it's less than 10 percent. I think this is very much an area for kidney transplantation improvement. I don't think that there's perhaps as much as high of a rate of discards in, in the other organs. Yeah. Well, great. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. Let's um, move on and um, pivot to obviously a very present topic, which is uh, COVID-19 as we are uh, gearing up or already in another wave. And I think these type of data are still important to continue to publish. So it'd be great to hear your review. 
Yeah, so this is a brief communication that's one of the studies that's come out of the University of Washington's multi-center registry study. There have been several papers in the general population that have shown that the mortality rate of hospitalized adults with COVID has declined substantially since the start of the pandemic from 20 to 25% in the early periods of March and April to less than 10% uh, in the summer and fall of 2020. And so in this particular study, the authors are looking to see whether a similar decrease in mortality has occurred in solid organ transplant recipients. One of the limitations of this study is that because dates are considered identifiable protected health information, only the season of COVID diagnosis was collected. And so the cases were divided into winter or spring for the early time period and summer or fall for the late time period. And using their online registry, they studied 571 patients during the early period and 402 patients during the late period. In comparing the baseline characteristics of the patients during these two periods, they see that the age of the patients is similar. There were differences in some of the comorbidities, and it's not surprising that the early time period comprised more cases from the Northeast and the Midwest compared to the South and Western United States in the later time period, which mimics the spread of the pandemic that we saw across the country. Black patients accounted for a higher proportion, while Hispanic or Latinx patients accounted for a lower proportion of cases in the early time period compared to the later period. And an additional difference that they saw was that there was a higher proportion of kidney and a lower proportion of lung recipients in the early cohort compared to the later cohort. So importantly, the main result, the 28-day mortality among solid organ transplant recipients hospitalized for COVID declined from the early period to the late period from 19.6% to 13.7%, which was statistically significant. And this difference remained after adjustments for differences in baseline comorbidities between the two time periods. This was in the setting of a similar proportion of patients requiring ICU admission, similar infection rates, and similar lengths of hospital stay. And in the later time period, the use of mechanical ventilation and dialysis was less frequent. The authors also looked at how therapeutic interventions differed during the study periods, and they found, not surprisingly, that the use of hydroxychloroquine and anti-IL-6 treatments declined, and that the use of steroids and remdesivir and convalescent plasma increased. So what they found is that similar to results in the general population, the mortality from COVID in hospitalized transplant patients has decreased over time. And this result remained true after adjusting for confounding conditions like heart disease or diabetes, suggesting that the difference in underlying patient comorbidities between the two time periods doesn't explain the decrease in mortality. I think that this might lead you to ask, well, perhaps is the observed decline in mortality because patients simply had less severe COVID? So we know the virus is mutating, its presentation is changing. However, surrogate markers of disease severity, such as the number of patients requiring ICU admission or the number with abnormal chest imaging or lymphopenia presentation were not lower in the later time period. And in fact, a higher proportion of patients required supplemental oxygen in the later time period. So that suggests 
that the decreased mortality cannot be fully explained by a shift towards um, a lower baseline illness severity. In the paper, the authors speculate that the differences seen in patient outcomes is due to improvements in healthcare and health systems response to COVID. An example of this would be that even though in the later time period, more patients required supplemental oxygen, there was less use of mechanical ventilation perhaps reflecting global changes in our understanding of how to manage COVID over time. But of course, the study doesn't allow for the definitive testing of this hypothesis. It seems to suggest that we've improved as a whole in our COVID management. Of note, on univariate analysis, while there were geographic differences between the two study time periods, there was no difference in mortality across regions, suggesting that regional differences in care did not explain the difference in mortality trends. The strengths of this study obviously are that it's a large national sample size. One important limitation, though, is that this is a voluntary reporting by centers that are electing to participate in the study, which may introduce some bias and makes it difficult to determine how this study cohort represents the entire solid organ transplant population. But I think this paper offers some hope that we've made progresses with COVID and is obviously especially relevant now that we're seeing increasing COVID numbers. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. I think obviously the elephant in the room is this is data from a year ago, right? This um, this was not in the vaccination, this, this vaccination year. And I haven't seen similar reports. Maybe there's a follow-up study on the, during the vaccination era or year that not sure it'd be completely different. I'm sure the numbers would be much smaller, but um, just curious. This well, is, maybe you know, um, this a paper, was, it's possible that um, I, I, we have had a recent paper published using the National Cohort Collaborative, which is a national data system sponsored by the CD2D, the Center for Data and um funded by NIGMS and, and uh, you know, an NIH-affiliated institutional project where 56 different academic centers have been forcing their COVID-positive data in through a very robust uh, informatics approach. And our findings were quite a bit different. We had, it's, so it's not voluntary, it's, man, you know, if your center is involved, your data gets imported. And so we have thousands of patients and actually saw significantly higher mortality rate between SOT and, and non-organ transplanted recipients, mostly higher in the elderly. And interestingly, while men are more commonly deceased versus women, their mortality is higher. That differential in solid organ is, is a little bit shrunken in terms of the relative risk. It's interesting in the accompanying editorial that my colleagues here, Dr. Khalil and Florescu, feel that that part of the mortality issue may be immunomodulation by the immunosuppression, Rebecca. And I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Uh, again, I have concerns of interpreting that we're doing better. This is a this was a voluntary registry that started when people were really excited and you were excited to put your cases in, but I'm not sure people are as excited now to put the patients that don't do well in. So, uh, you know, that's maybe part of the issue. But I thought it was in intriguing that he came up with the notion of immunosuppression as being a potentially a benefit to their outcome, I, if I'm reading his thoughts correctly. 
their thoughts. Yeah, I think I think both of your comments touch on something that's really important, which is that this is data from a year ago when it was the start of the pandemic and things were rapidly changing our understanding of how to treat patients of, you know, we were giving everybody hydroxychloroquine at the beginning and now we don't do that at all. And so it's you know, where we are today is very different than we were even in the later time period of this study. And, you know, vaccination, as you mentioned, is not taken into account. And that clearly is changing outcomes of our patients. I think whether the immunosuppression is helping or hurting, I think that's a very controversial issue. I, you know, seen papers that go both ways. So. Okay, I didn't want to draw you in as a <laughs> into that dark hole. I mean, what we what we generally do now is kind of risk stratify them into high or low immunological risk and 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 also severity of illness with their COVID and just kind of gestalt sort of determine whether it's safe to lower them their mycophenolate or their target levels. But it's not. I, I agree that there isn't a universal guidance or recommended approach or is something that has really been instrumented that changes their outcome, you know, significantly. So Yeah, it but. seems that it seems that in this study, as in most studies, the the number one change that's always made is to if they're if the patient's on an antimetabolite to reduce yeah. that or hold that dose. But you know, whether that's doing something or not, I think is is not in liver clearly. we have no in liver we have no problem doing that. <laughs> but Every every other organ gets scared. Yeah, very helpful, and and um, I think we need to move on. But I appreciate that those reviewing those two articles, Rebecca and Roz. Do you want yeah, so to move on to foreign? Sure, this is um, out of my sort of out of my wheelhouse, but um, but not out of my long term graph failure wheelhouse. So this is a, a study randomized controlled trial liposomal cyclosporin A for inhalation in the prevention of BOS following lung transplant. So all you lung transplant people listening in, please feel free to email me and make fun of me behind my back, but don't say anything publicly. Uh, this is a multi-center European and Canadian trial by Klaus Neurer is the lead author and colleague. So this paper and this study addresses, I think, a critical issue in lung transplant as, as in other organs, late graft failure has really been a difficult issue to manage and to mitigate, even with acute rejection rates down, being down. And when I trained, we thought of this as bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome or BOS, um, and it was detected based on changes of an FEV1 baseline, classified as uh, greater than 20% as being grade one. But in, in reality, chronic lung allograft dysfunction, or CLAD, is the newer terminology, and there are ISHLT criteria. There are several phenotypes, although BOS is the obstructive phenotype and very frequent. And so over the years, over the last two decades, there's been interest in trying to minimize lung inflammation um, and in lung injury, whether it's anti-reflux measures or prophylactic azithromycin, for example. And so there's been a whole bunch of studies about inhaled cyclosporin or calcineurin inhibitor, mostly CSA. There was um, a New England Journal study in 2006 by uh, Dr. Iacono who is actually the author of the accompanying editor where he writes a beautiful history of, of the product development as an academic. Um, and that was about 50 patients that showed that inhaled cyclosporin had no change on rejection, acute rejection, but it actually appeared to improve patient survival and chronic rejection 
aka BOSS, uh, outcomes. There, but there was a much larger study done in 2011 called the Cycle Study. I have to look it up again. But um, Cyclist, which was an open-label study, it was 211 patients and didn't really see any positive impact of this inhaled treatment. Again, this was a propylene glycol formulation. A lot of patients uh, ended up not tolerating it both in both arms of the control and treatment. And this study showed no impact, whether on acute rejection, BOS, um, and patient survival. Unfortunately, the study was never published. And so most of the studies you can see outlined in the editorial are really small single-center trials or um, open label. And so the objective of this study was to do a randomized control trial using a different formulation of inhaled cyclosporin, one that was liposomal, so the notion that it would be absorbed better and less of an irritant, to look at the primary outcome, which was prevention of BOS. So again, the study was conducted back in 2009 to 2013. So there is no terminology clad then. They use BOS as their outcome measure. They start off as a phase two, three-arm study with a high-dose arm of cyclo, a low-dose arm of cyclo versus vehicle, and then they eventually then converted it to a phase three pivotal concept trial that just had two arms. It had just a high-dose cyclo, which was, I think, 20 migs per inhalation uh, versus a control. And just to cut to the chase, I have to tell you, there's a couple of funny things about this study. The study was terminated early by the sponsor. And even though it involved 19 centers and 130 of 180 targeted patients were entered, they discontinued it due to financial issues. And so the um, the analyses we're seeing here should not in some way surprise us that the patient population was developed for this primary outcome of BOSS and the patient population is much smaller. And indeed, a lot of patients seem to be not even getting close to the uh, long-term outcome. And the, the goal was to follow patients for a couple of years, and uh, the study terminated. So we, we have a much shorter follow, probably about 20 months. Again, I'll just talk a little bit about the outcome. I think this is important. If you're not sure about clinical study design, you can look at figure one. It, it shows you how the patients were screened and enrolled. And interestingly, in this study, they decided to analyze patients based on those that actually followed the study protocol. So it is not intention to treat. It is actually those patients that were on treatment at the, the time of study ending. And that really reduced their patient population to 45 treated and 38 uh, untreated, I mean, with vehicle. And again, a very min a small minority of patients actually made it to the end of the study because, again, the study closed early. Um, interestingly, premature discontinuation for both arms was fairly similar, and about half of each premature discontinuation in both arms was related to the study ending. So we don't have really complete follow-up. Um, I'll say that the primary outcome was not met. There was no statistically significant difference, and they enrolled. They started patients early, like six weeks post-transplant, and were treating them a couple of times a week with this inhaled treatment. And again, uh, part of that is, as you know, that the patient population was much smaller. However, some post-hoc analysis using a more what they thought might be a more sensitive development of BOS using BOS stage zero P, which is a much lower change in baseline. Uh, FEV1 and also associated as a prognostic marker of later BOSS had a trend of significance. Again, there was no, no significant impact between acute rejection episodes or patient death. 
discontinuations in this patient population I thought were relatively high, and they were very similar between both the treatment group and the control group. Again, I don't think it's necessarily that they had respiratory dysfunction when they were inhaling this treatment. Uh, the adverse events counted were not very common and were very similar, but although viral infections were in about 12% in uh, the treatment group of, with CNI and a rare fungal infection. But again, it appeared that patients, when they're well, don't really want to have this stuff inhaling and they don't feel good about it. And so I think the discontinuations were also affected by patients saying, I mean, 15 withdrew consent and treatment and nine withdrew consent and control. So they probably just said, like, why am I doing this, which is unfortunate. Um, interestingly, you can get enough of a epithelial uptake of calcineurin inhibitor that you can actually have a detectable level. The half-life of the drug is three hours by inhalation with a T-max, a concentration max of about 30 minutes, but when they did random drug levels, they were really low in, of cyclospore, and they were only like three to four. So though there had been some reported graft, uh, kidneys, sorry, not graft, kidney dysfunction related to the inhalation treatments, it was not apparent using this treatment. So what are the issues here? This was a shortened study by the sponsor. They really only achieved about 30% of who they needed to enroll. Interestingly, the shortened follow-up was another issue because the expectation by the company was they'd need another three and a half years to get full follow-up of all the patients. And that may have harmed their interpretation of the results. Why is that? Well, I didn't know this, but double lung transplants, which were equally common in both arms, take almost a longer time to achieve a baseline FEV1, whereas single lungs do this a little bit quicker or more reliably done so. And so, the changes in FEV1 utilized as their primary measure may have been affected in both arms, but primarily looking for this effect might have been mitigated because they didn't really have a good baseline achieved yet uh, in the double lung. So that was one consideration. From my perspective, I think it's pretty sad that a company um, pulled out that they didn't see the need, the necessity, the cost was too high. They didn't get that there was a significant return of investment. And I think that's kind of uh, disappointing. Uh, Dr. Iacono's study uh, uh, editorial talks a little bit about the limitations, but hopes that there'll be continued uh, interest because this is an unmet need. And indeed, one of my frustrations in thinking about late graft failure is what are the measures we use? And, and that graft dysfunction is really a late measure. And even in the lung field, that's their primary measure. They don't do surveillance biopsy. They may do BAL. You know, do we have biomarkers? Are there better monitoring tools to more sensitively detect these patients? Because there's been tons of work done in this area. How do we find a palatable treatment so patients don't drop out because they don't really like the inhalation? And maybe it's a psychology of, you know, I'm stable. Why do I need any improvement? And certainly I know for surveillance biopsies in kidney patients, convincing someone with stable function that it's, uh, it's potentially a good idea to do it has always been challenging. So really, to me, a very interesting paper. And, and certainly, I look, got to learn a little bit more about late graft failure and in, in, in the lung population. Yeah, I, I agree, Roz. I think this kind of shows more of the challenges of this type of study. And, you know, lung transplant is the, other than I think it's above small bowel in numbers, but the lowest numbers of patients. And then you need to follow them long term for these outcomes. And 
And, uh, but, you know, nevertheless, it's, uh, I think it gets published in AJT because it is a randomized controlled trial. And no matter what, those studies should be published, no matter what they find. I, I think, you know, the, 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 I'm just upset when a company decides yeah. not to publish negative data because let us look at the data and let us come up with the explanation. And, and maybe it is that their study was stilted one way versus the other. But I do appreciate our journal actually and the reviewers actually saying, there's importance to uh, negative data. Um, it's yeah. worthwhile. Yeah, I remember the uh, serolimus randomized study in liver transplant patients it was a negative study and it was published 10 years after it was presented. And it's because investigators got the data together and decided to present the study and publish it. And it was helpful to the transplant field to publish formally such a study. So I'm glad that they actually published this in, in a reasonable amount of time, even if it was negative. But thank you, Roz. I think it's time to move on to Dr. Caicedo, who's going to be talking about two papers, really interesting, uh, unique, innovative papers that are on living donor liver transplantation. And Dr. Caicedo, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much, Josh, for inviting me. Then, first of all, I'm going to start with the paper title, Pure Laparoscopic Living Donor Liver Transplantation, Dreams Come True, written by Dr. Suk from Seoul National University College of Medicine, South Korea, followed by a peer editorial titled Pure Laparoscopic Living Donor Liver Transplantation, Pro West or Progress, by Dr. Cherky from Paul Bros Hospital in France. Then, the first remarkable fact about this paper is that there have been no published reports of pure laparoscopic or laparoscopically assisted liver transplantation until now. According to the authors, they have developed a safe and reproducible method for minimally invasive living donor liver transplantation, which consists of pure laparoscopic explant hepatectomy and pure laparoscopic implantation of the graft, which was inserted through a supra pubic incision. Before discussing the surgical details, it's important to highlight some facts regarding this impressive South Korean transplant team. First of all, the lead author and surgeon, Dr. Suh, has a personal experience for, of, of more than a thousand open donor hepatectomies and 60 laparoscopic assisted donor hepatectomy and more than 200 laparoscopic hepatectomy in patients with tumors. And his center has performed more than 400 pure laparoscopic donor hepatectomies, mostly right uh, hepatectomies, and more than 2,300 liver transplants, including more than 1,600 living donor liver transplants. And actually, based on their experience of their the main surgeon at the team, they initiated a minimum invasive living donor liver transplant program in March of 2020. In this report, or in this paper, the authors present the first pure laparoscopic living donor liver transplantation performed using a suprapubic incision, which was used for a native liver retrieval and implantation of the donor's partial liver graft. The living donor hepatectomy was also done purely laparoscopically, which is currently the standard procedure in their center. Now, very quick points about the recipient. There was placed in supine and reversed in the limbal position with legs apart. They use five 12 millimeter trockers and they use uh, um, a flex laparoscope. They perform 
the whole procedure laparoscopically. They did the hepatectomy, and even there was a portal vein thrombosis. They thrombectomized it. They removed the liver, was modifying the back table. They reconstructed hepatic veins with PTFE, and they uh, placed the, the liver in the recipient again through the suprapubic incision and they start doing the transplant. And they perform the whole transplant uh, laparoscopically. They reconstruct the hepatic vein, the portal veins, and even they did uh, the anastomosis of the middle hepatic artery was anastomosis uh, to the graft hepatic artery using seven oprolines, as well the baldac was done and laparoscopically. The patectomy took six hours and the total operative time for the transplant was 16 hours. Patient was discharged home post of the 11 without complications. Then they discussed the benefit of this minimum basic procedure, minimizing the, the Mercedes incision or the, the uh, double uh, inverted L incision. And if the patient doesn't have the large upper abdominal wound, that can help the patient to recover of a surgery. They can minimize the risk of complication like hematomas, infections, hernias. And the same benefit that they have seen with the laparoscope, and I'm sorry, the laparoscopic donor hepatectomy, they, they start seeing uh, in the recipient. And also there is the, satis the wound satisfaction that the donor as well the recipient are, are reporting. And the patient is recovering faster after surgery. There is multiple limitation of these procedures. The first one is the long operation time. More time was needed for the position of the graft, controlling the bleeding, suturing as compared to what is required in open technique. For this group, with the warm ischemia time was 84 minutes in this purely laparoscopic living donor liver transplant. When for them, when they are doing it open, to take only 33 minutes. They think that over time, with more experience, they can shorten the warm ischemia time and the total surgical time. And to minimize the suturing time, reconstructing the vessels and, and bile ducts, uh, they suggest that maybe the robotic system may be helpful. For now, this novel procedure should be performed preferably by the highly experienced team. And furthermore, only a small number of cases selected carefully in terms of not only in the recipient disease and morpho uh, morphology, but also the gramma anatomy must be subjected to this procedure for now. Then again, it's a very interesting paper written for somebody that has a lot of experience, and that's why he was able to do it, but has limitations for dissemination. I think, Josh, now there is a very nice editorial about this paper written by Dr. Cherky, the pure uh, title, Pure Laparoscopic Living Donor Liver Transplantation Progress or Progress. Then liver transplantation has been considered the ultimate limit to minimum invasive surgery, has now been overcome, and the author should be congratulated for this amazing technical feat. That is no question about it. Then even though laparoscopic or robotic kidney transplantation has been reported, liver transplantation is more complex operation. Then this type of procedure, they, they happen overnight. This team has a long process and the, the senior author has the largest worldwide experience on pure laparoscopic donor right hepatectomy. And their reaction could be mixed 
there's multiple concerns. Probably the first one is safety and operative time about this procedure. Major bleeding may occur in all stages during liver transplantation and usually handle it quickly during the open surgery. But with, the lap, uh, with this laparoscopic approach, uh, there's concerns if we're going to be able to manage a bleeding or a catastrophe uh, quickly enough. In this case, six hours of the hepatectomy is a long time. There's also concerns about the time of the clamping of the portal vein and the potential swelling of the bowels that can happen. And if the ischemias are too long, that can affect the, the outcome of this graph. In this case, patient recovered without complications, but it still is a concern. The final concern is that it can be disseminated. First of all, it needs a very experienced team and patients can be too sick to tolerate these type of procedures. Then that could be some of the potential limitations. Definitely is a progress, but if it's a progress remains to be determined. For the moment, it's an operation for very few patients and even fewer surgeons. Time will tell if laparoscopic liver transplantation matures into a meaningful procedure. Then Josh, um, now I just yeah. need to open to some discussion here of this interesting paper. Yeah, thank you, JC. That was that was great to hear from your surgical perspective and and also um, thinking about, you know, is this something that is just so unique to this one place and this one surgical team or, you know, what are the opportunities to disseminate down the road? I what What this kind of reminds me of, which isn't a great comparison, but when I was in medical school in the 90s, laparoscopic cholecystectomy became, you know, really a lot of surgeons were starting to do that. And there were complications that I think they had to kind of work out over time. And, and that became the, the norm subsequently. Obviously, this is a much bigger deal than a laparoscopic, than a cholecystectomy. But I, I'm just wondering if you think just on your, ex, you know, your, your knowledge of this, of the field, think about 10 years from now, 15 years from now, is this going to be the standard of care, you think, uh, down the road, uh, like lap coli is, or do you think it's really going to be still in a not take off? Do you, do you have any thoughts about that or predict? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think this is important technology. I think the laparoscopic approach has limitation, especially when you have to sew vessels and um, bowel ducts. I think removing the organ probably is something very doable, but to do the transplant, the implantation will have limitations. And especially for the, if there's not enough domain of the, the liver is too big or the patient is too sick, uh, it's going to be very limited. And I think there's more progress and I think there's more future for robotic approaches because become easier. It's kind of almost, well, very similar to do it openly compared with a laparoscope for, for laparoscopic suturing, these se using 7.0 prolines, uh, the, the technical skill is really high and it's going to be very hard to disseminate. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing is a lap coli, different thing is a, a laparoscopic donor nephrectomy, but now suturing a structure that are two or three millimeters in diameter Although we have to, to recognize that one of the advantages for, for with these new cameras, you have 
greater magnification, but I think the robotic magnification is even better. Thank well, that's, that's a great, uh, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, no, I, I think in the second paper, we're going to discuss a little bit more about going to robotics. Yeah, I was going to say that's a segue to, to maybe to start talking about the next paper for on robotics. I mean, I still think this is really, uh, I mean, I loved reading this case report. Um, I thought it was fascinating, but it did, it did feel you'd have to have the, the, the most expertise and the, the perfect donor and recipient pair to do an approach like this. Um, but it's pretty amazing. Oh, absolutely. It's amazing. And the, the author needs to be congratulated. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, that's why I stress the fact at the beginning, this team is so experienced. They have done so many. They didn't try to do the, you know, after a few, you know, they're talking about a personal experience, a thousand. Yeah. It's huge. Then it's not like a, you can attend this after <laughs> 10 or 20 or 100. It's a, a, after a thousand. That's pretty and amazing. To have that volume um, is it, it, hard. You know, very few centers in the world, especially in Asia and Middle East, have these type of volumes. But here in America, our volumes are lower. Great. Well, let's, um, you know, maybe talk about robotics. Fantastic. Then the, the, the second paper is titled Robotic Donor Hepatectomy, a major breakthrough in living donor liver transplantation. This is written by uh, Dieter Broering from the King Faisal uh, Specialist Hospital and Research Center in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The author and his colleagues describe the history of minimally invasive living donor hepatectomy, as well as their journey through all minimally invasive techniques. Today, they are offering to all living donors a robotic hepatectomy. Now, it is well known that in many countries and areas of the world, especially in the Middle East, as well as Asia, access to disease donor liver transplantation is limited due to cultural and religious factors. Living donor liver transplantation for them could be the only realistic option for those with any liver disease or, for example, hepatocellular carcinoma. They start describing all the minimum invasive liver surgeries in the field of living liver donation. The first one happened in, in France uh, Dr. Shirky in 2002 performed uh, um, a series of laparoscopic donor left lateral segmentectomies. In 2006, actually here in our group in Northwestern, Dr. Coffran uh, performed the first laparoscopic hand-assisted right donor hepatectomy. Then due to multiple technical advancements, it was possible to do a pure laparoscopic donor hepatectomy. The first one uh, described by hand in Korea did a right side, a purely laparoscopic donor hepatectomy in 2010. Dr. Troisi performed the left side pure laparoscopic donor hepatectomy. Here in, in, in Chicago, also by uh, 2012, Dr. Giulianotti in the University of Illinois performed the first right love robotic living donor hepatectomy. The authors highlight some of the advantages of minimum invasive donor hepatectomy, they point out that most of the post-operative mor morbidities associated with the open donor hepatectomy are caused by actually the abdominal wall trauma um, with short and long-term disabilities like uh, the keloid, the scar, hernia, pain, discomfort, delaying return to normal activities. They postulate that eliminating this large upper abdominal incision 
and its sequelas would be a major advantage for the donor. The authors also mention how this the sluggish dissemination of purely laparoscopic donor hepatectomies in inception in 2002 could be primarily attributed to limitation of the conventional laparoscopic surgical techniques in addressing the inherent complexity of the donor hepatectomy. The, the challenge of ergonomics to optimal and, and steady visualization and intracorporeal suturing are all exacerbated during a lengthy and demanding procedure such as donor hepatectomy. Today, only a handful of highly experienced and innovative centers, like uh, the Korean group that we just mentioned in the first paper, has been able to perform this type of procedure purely laparoscopically. The robotic platform, in contrast to the laparoscopic approach, has see, uh, several advantages, including superior visualization with an amplified field up to 10x, optimal ergonomics with tremor-free instrumental movement, especially for very small anastomosis, which had much wider range of angulation, precise dissection capabilities, and easier and more expeditious suturing abilities. The robotic approach has also limitations. Currently, there is no CUSA application for a robotic platform. Another criticism of the robotic system is the difficulties of exchanging instruments that could potentially impact the hemostasis control in case of significant bleeding. Fortunately, they describe that this risk has been theoretical so far. Bleeding prevention is accomplished by early vessel identification facilitated by this uh, fantastic visualization, 3D visualization and magnification of 10X, along with a meticulous and accurate dissection, which is accomplished with uh, multi-articulated instruments. Moreover, the advancement and development of the robotic platform allow easy and fast the docking and conversion with a few seconds. Then a few centers have successfully launched a robotically uh, living donor hepatectomy, especially in Saudi Arabia, Korea, and Taiwan. They are reporting, and this group now is reporting their uh, experience. They insist, they discuss and mention the, pre the requirements to be able to establish these type of programs, robotic uh, living donor hepatectomies. First of all, the consult surgeon should have extensive experience in open living donor hepatectomy. Second, the, completing the uh, hepatobiliary cases via robotic approach is an imperative step prior to initiating an experience in robotic donor hepatectomy. A dedicated team of bedside surgeon and scrub technician needs to be established to minimize issues during the procedure to improve safety. Uh, a collaborative proctorship uh, is also very important to establish. And the idea they suggest that when, whenever centers are starting this type of uh, robotic approach, they need to start using uh, donors with a standard anatomy um, that fa can facilitate the procedure and, and provide better outcomes. The dual console training has an important role in the development of, uh, of the le learning curve. Now they present their experience the King Faisal Specialist Hospital Research Center, they start the liver transplant program in 2001. They start doing this is donor liver transplant with a very few living donors. By two, uh, 
2011, they introduced pediatric liver transplantation and they started increasing adult to adult liver transplantation. By 2019, they were doing 186 liver transplant and 86% of them were living donors. We're talking about 160 living donors per year. It's a high volume center compared to all centers in, in North America. They start in their journey, they start doing laparoscopic assisted procedures like at the Northwestern or hybrid method in 2018. They start also at that point, start doing some fully laparoscopic and, and, and they start doing some robotic. By 2021, the center reached the stage where all donors can be offered uh, fully robotically if the donor wants to. Then by March of uh, 2021, they have done 318 robotic donor hepatectomies, 42% right lobes, 35% left lateral segments, and 23 left lobes, with two conversions to open and overall donor mortality of zero and morbidity of 5.9. Donor mortality was within uh, was 2.7 in the left lateral segment group. 5.5% in the left lobe group and 9.1% in the right lobe group. Then apart from the obvious co um, cosmetic benefits of the procedure, the pain, blood loss, as well, the hospital stay was significantly less uh, follow robotic donor hepatectomy. Comparing to the fully laparoscopic donor hepatectomy that in some point they were doing it, and, and now they, they evolved to just robotic donor hepatectomy, they they showed reduction of mor morbidity in the donors as well in the recipients and at the same time the donors were having the benefit of of the robotic approach the cosmetics cosmetic outcomes were better especially because they were using a smaller port only eight millimeters uh, were required for the robot and the blood loss and the hospital state was shorter with the robotic donor hepatectomy compared with the fully laparoscopic approach. The other important advantage of the robotic platform are the shorter learning curve. Uh, the laparoscopic approach is more difficult and the learning curve is longer. Here's one of the advantages that most likely this is something that could be doable in the near future. Uh, laparoscopically is going to be harder in general. Then and and when they were deciding what type of organs they can do or get what type of donors they can uh, do robotically, they start. They went through three different phases. The phase one include grad with single vessel with single baldac and weight less than uh, eight hundred and fifty grams. In the phase two, they went to grafts that has two arteries, two baldacs and sizable right inferior hepatic veins and grabs weigh up to a uh, kilogram. And the first three, which include bigger grabs with more than one kilogram, more than two baldacs and grabs with two portal veins. Then in conclusion, they have evolved through all the minimum invasive living donor hepatectomies. They start with open, they went to laparoscopic assisted, they went to fully laparoscopic, and now they completely evolved to robotic. Uh, I think there is a, a potential here. They have uh, great outcomes, and I think this could be uh, disseminated easier 
than the laparoscopic approach in my view. Josh, any comments? Or yeah, I was. I, I, that's exactly what I was going to ask is where that it, it sounds like your opinion is that the robotic approach is more you know, teachable, it sounds like. And in that way, you know, we have to get, uh, let's face it, the people who are going to do this down the road have to get trained in it and get experience in it. And um, if it's more teachable and dispersible, um, this, this technique, then it sounds to me like this would have a clear advantage over a laparoscopic and maybe uh, the first, the first paper that you presented is going to be more unlikely than, you know, this situation of doing robotic surgery. Is that what I, you think? Yes, and no, I think so. And uh, both papers, they emphasize that whoever's doing it needs to have a great experience. It's not like uh, after a few, you can start yeah. laparoscopic or robotic cases. You need to have a great experience doing openly to be able to solve the issues, to figure out how to do it minimally invasive. And, and again, as they point out uh, as well, other, in other uh, surgical field like uh, uh, pancreatectomy robotically, you know, these procedures can be done and the learning curve is, is, is shorter when you use the robot compared with a purely laparoscopic approach. Do you, do you think, um, just the last question I have is um, just thinking about these are, the two reports that you presented were outside of North America. Um, what do you think the ability to translate these approaches or to start doing them in, in the United States? Do we need to have surgeons go over to these places that are doing them and spend, you know, a year learning? Um, is it, are we, what do you, what do you think the, the, the possibilities are for centers in the, in the U S to take these things on? Right. I, I think again, the experience is really important. And these people, they are doing it in Saudi Arabia. They have done more than, in 10 years, they have done 1,200 living yeah. donor hepatectomies and living donor liver transplantation. Then basically, again, for the current volumes in North America, it, we need to be in higher volume centers to, to gain experience and, and to see how to do it. For sure, can be attempt, but whoever is trying is after have a good experience it's not like a new person just trying to start doing it from yeah. scratch i think you need to have experience and both papers emphasize that i was i was just thinking this may improve the donor experience and and quality of life and and maybe just taking on these this approach and bringing it to the u.s may actually help expand living donor liver transplantation by by uh, lessening the donor's issues with having, you know, an open procedure, uh, uh, even though it's not a large wound, it's, I mean, there's a big difference between this and, and robotic or laparoscopic in terms of their, their abdomen and the scar. I was, I was thinking that it, it may help promote it. And I just want to emphasize a couple of things. Regardless, you need to have a, a extraction side. And they're still doing a 12-centimeter Final still incision, a super mm -hmm. incision, or you do a minimum invasive or a hand assisted laparoscopic hand assisted, and you do mm -hmm. the eight to ten centimeter incision in the midline. Then, how many pores you're going to use? They're using four and five pores plus the extraction side versus a midline and a five millimeter pore, as we do it in our hybrid method. All of these are options. Uh, mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, the most important fact here is donor safety. 
Yeah, sure. As long as we can guarantee or accomplish donor safety, procedures can be attempted. But it is a learning curve, and these people have worked hard for a long time. It's like a 10 years process, it's not one or two. It's a long process before they're able to attempt those. And I think that is what we have to recognize. Well, but thank I you. Do. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, presenting. And I'd like to also thank Dr. Mann and Dr. Craig Shapiro for presenting their papers and happy new year to everybody. And we'll see you with the next podcast in February, 2022. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.